0: Hello, and welcome to the Tri-Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the Tri-Doc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Through a lot of hard work and some good fortune, I've had the privilege of attending several award ceremonies and world championship rolldowns over the years. In a few cases, I've even been on the podium. And in a few more, I've had the joy of hearing my name called for a 70.3 or Ironman World Championship slot. And in more cases than that, I've sat through an interminably long process, only to come away empty-handed. Although the lengthy awards and roll-down can be slightly more bearable when you finish with a podium spot and or a coin in your pocket to signify your qualification status to a world championship, even then, they are still far too long. And when you consider that your day often started at 4 in the morning and your race ended some 5 hours before the whole process finally comes to an end, I cannot understand why the WTC wouldn't want to speed the whole thing. Certainly the athletes would appreciate it. After many of the races that I have done, I receive an email with a survey asking about my race experience, and I always complete it. Without fail, I detail my dissatisfaction with the awards and roll down, and I always make the same suggestion for what I think is a reasonable solution, but to date, it seems to have fallen on deaf ears. So allow me to share my idea with you, my listeners, and maybe you can let me know if you think I'm way off base, or if this is as good an idea as I think it is, and perhaps we could maybe band together to try and get the message through. In case you haven't had the pleasure of sitting one of these lengthy affairs, here's a brief overview of how it goes. Awards go first. All the athletes gather, usually in a grassy area near the finish, and the top five athletes in men's and women's age groups are recognized from 18 to 24 all the way through whichever age group had the oldest competitor completing the race. Incidentally, this is why awards can only start as late as they do, usually around 4 p.m. They have to give the older competitors time to complete the race in the allotted time. And for the record, I have zero problem with this. My issue isn't the fact that we start late. My issue is the length of time it takes once we eventually do start for awards and roll down to finally get done. Now, once all the awards have been given out, they then make an announcement that World Championship slots will be given out next. The way this works is that for each race, there are a fixed number of slots, usually about 40. Every age group represented in the race is afforded one slot. After that, age groups are awarded additional slots based on the number of competitors who started the race that day. So for example, if the men's 35 to 39 age group had 200 competitors and was the largest age group, they might end up with three total slots, while the women's 50 to four with a total of 50 competitors will only get the one slot. Slots are awarded to the top finisher or finishers if there's more than one slot in the age group, and then if those people pass, the slots roll down to the next eligible person. If no one in an age group claims a slot, the slot is then reallocated to a larger age group without extra slots. It sounds a bit complicated, but it's actually pretty straightforward. At any rate, Roll down can take an hour or more, depending on how many slots are rolled and reallocated, and it can be epically frustrating if you are someone who is right on the cusp of qualifying, wait all of that time, and then leave empty-handed. So I've always wondered, why not combine the two procedures and save everybody's time? For example, You're doing the awards and recognizing the top five in an age group for their awards. You've called them up to the stage and then, before dismissing them, announce how many slots there are to the World Championships available to this group. Let's say there's two. Finisher number one, do you want the slot? Yes. Congratulations. Finisher two, do you want the slot? No. Okay. Then it rolls to you, number three. Do you want it? And so on. If the slot rolls through the top five, then make it known that this slot will be available in the roll-down which will take place after awards. If there are less than five competitors in an age group and no one wants the slot, then let it be known that this slot will be reallocated to a different age group, tell everybody who's waiting right then and there which age group it'll be in the roll-down that will take place after the awards are done, and then carry on. By doing things in this way, it's potentially possible that by the time awards are finished, all the slots are claimed, and people sitting around hoping for a roll down will at least know not to wait any longer. Similarly, people hoping for reallocated slots will also know if one is available before awards are done. The whole thing would be much more efficient and get everyone, including the Ironman staff, out of there much more quickly. Well, what do you think? Does this make sense, or am I totally crazy and off-base? Let me know. Email me at tri-doc at iCloud.com. On the show today, Steven Ettinger had a successful career as a professional mountain biker riding for the BMC team and as a Team USA rider in several international competitions. After retiring from the sport, Steven started medical school, where he faces challenges of a whole new variety, and he joins me today for a discussion on life after a pro cycling career. The triathlete Routard goes overseas to review the inaugural Ironman Ireland, By now, you've likely heard how eventful the first edition of this race in Cork was, and my guest was there and will give us the lowdown on what is a difficult course but is still to be considered a destination race. Before all of that, I have another listener question to answer. Heart rate monitors have been a part of fitness training for many years now, and training with heart rate is something most athletes are pretty familiar with. Recently, though, another aspect of heart rate has started to catch on, not so much as a measure of training intensity, but rather as a means of monitoring fatigue. Is heart rate variability useful in this regard, and is it something that you should consider incorporating into your routine? I look at the evidence and give you my thoughts. Coming up. In medicine, and especially in emergency medicine, we have a preoccupation with vital signs. In case you're unfamiliar, the vital signs include at minimum the heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and temperature. The reason the vital signs are so vital, if you will, is that they give a look at the status of the patient without having to know anything about their symptoms or history. For example, before I go see a patient in the emergency department, I look at their vital signs. If their heart rate is very high or their blood pressure is very low, then I know that I need to be worried and take immediate steps to initiate treatment even before I speak to them. If, on the other hand, the vital signs appear normal, then I can be reassured and know that I have time to get a full history and physical before beginning any therapeutic interventions. But as important as the vital signs are, they do have their limitations. Medications or drugs of abuse can cause changes in the vitals that may be misleading, and important medical conditions can also cause the vital signs to be falsely reassuring when, in fact, the patient is actually quite ill. Furthermore, The fundamental problem with the vital signs is they impose a sense of linearity on people who, as highly complex organisms, are actually incredibly chaotic. For over a century and a half, we have looked at the heart rate and said that so long as it's in the normal range, then the patient must be okay. The higher it is above or lower it is below the normal, then the sicker the patient must be. But no such linear relationship reliably exists. For the reason I mentioned, as well as others that I haven't really touched on, vital signs simply do not always correlate in a linear fashion with health or sickness. With advances in research into nonlinear mathematics and their application to human physiology, scientists began to appreciate the importance of variability in the human organism. One example of variability in humans is the subject of this episode's listener question. A listener wrote in to ask about heart rate variability and whether or not there is any evidence to support its use as a tool for assessing training fatigue. Heart rate variability refers to the constantly changing duration of time between successive heartbeats. When we measure the number of heartbeats over a minute, the pulse if you will, the number that is reported is the heart rate. Say that number is 60. You might think that in this case the heart beats exactly one time every second. But in fact, the amount of time between each beat changes ever so slightly. Perhaps it'll be a fraction more than a second in one pair of beats, then slightly less than a second for the next pair. How much the time between beats changes is a measure of variability, in this case, heart rate variability. Despite its name though, heart rate variability has very little to actually do with the heart. You see, the variability in time between heartbeats is actually a reflection of the activity of our autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system itself is made up of two distinct components, the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems, and each of these have important roles modulating activity of various organ systems. In the very simplest of terms, the sympathetic nervous system can be thought of as the fight or flight system. It ramps things up under conditions of stress, while the parasympathetic system can be thought of as the rest and digest system. It keeps things calm and has the important effects in modulating things like digestion, that are turned off in periods of acute stress. Now, these two systems are in direct opposition of each other, and the degree to which one or the other is dominant is an indicator of how much stress the body is under as a whole. Through years of observational studies, researchers have determined that when the sympathetic system dominates, variability in other systems, including heart rate variability, decreases. Further studies have shown that decreased heart rate variability is associated with poorer outcomes in all manner of medical disease states, including traumatic injuries, infections, diabetes, and heart attacks. It has been hypothesized that physiologic stress in the form of fatigue from overtraining could have a similar impact and result in decreased heart rate variability, and studies have been done to explore this and other training-related hypotheses. To date, there is evidence to suggest that heart rate variability can be used to reflect athlete recovery status, predict if an athlete is overtraining, and predict if an athlete may be more or less susceptible to training loads. But all of this comes with a lot of important caveats. First, all of the studies published to date in this field have been pretty small, and while in some instances the detected effects have been impressive, when studies are small, it's hard to know if the results are accurate or due to chance alone, or if those results are even generalizable. Second, it isn't entirely clear how we should be interpreting the variability number in the first place. While in general, the higher the variability, the healthier and fitter the individual, and the lower the variability, the opposite, this isn't really universally so. There are also different ways of measuring and interpreting variability, and baseline numbers for normal are not universally agreed upon, especially for athletes. Third, most of the research suggests benefits in men, but there's less compelling research in women. It isn't completely clear why this is so, but it appears that women have higher parasympathetic tone than men do at baseline, and therefore may not have as much change in heart rate variability with overtraining. Fourth, heart rate variability is susceptible to emotional stressors, and could be falsely decreased in settings of anxiety or psychological stress. Consequently, when life stressors are high, heart rate variability may be low even though fatigue or overtraining is not an issue. Fifth, and this is my personal caveat based on my understanding of this field. Heart rate variability is based on nonlinear, chaotic models, and was intended as a means of replacing linear, less reliable measures like heart rate. And yet, heart rate variability is being used in exactly the same way, as a linear model. If it's high, you must be good, and if low, you must be bad. The whole point of nonlinear models is that they should not be interpreted or used this way. Instead, they should be viewed as a reflection of much more complex systems with many more possible inputs and explanations. So where does this leave us with heart rate variability? Personally, I think that coaches and physiotherapists may have put the cart before the horse with this just a little bit. There's no doubt that heart rate variability is an intriguing way of assessing athlete fitness and levels of fatigue, and may have other uses as well. But for now, I think we may still be in a period where we are just getting an understanding of exactly what it means and how best to use it. Heart rate variability could certainly be incorporated as one more measure in an attempt to get as accurate a picture of an athlete's status of fatigue and overall training state, but I'm unconvinced that it should be the only way of assessing this at this time. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri-doc at ipod.com. My guest today is Steven Ettinger. Stephen grew up in eastern Washington, where his dad is an emergency physician, and his mom is a family nurse practitioner, so he had a lot of early exposure to the world of medicine. Growing up, Stephen did a lot of mountain biking, skiing, climbing, and backpacking in the North Cascades. He attended Montana State University Bozeman, where he completed his BS in exercise science in 2011, and it was while in Bozeman that his cycling career really began to blossom. By the time he graduated, he was racing for BMC, and was among the best under-23 riders in the world. In early 2012, he moved to Switzerland, and later Germany, where he spent another three years racing for BMC mountain bike racing team. Between 2015 and 2018, he raced for Show Air Cannondale, and later, Ride Biker Alliance, where he built his own racing project partnering with Focus Bikes, Shimano, and Cliff Bar. Over a career that spanned a decade, he won five national championships, including two elite titles and an under-23 title. An elite Pan American Championships title represented the United States at nine world championships and medaled at the Pan American Games. At the end of 2017, he hung up his racing shoes, and now he is immersed in a new chapter as a medical student at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. For now, though, Stephen is taking a moment out of his busy schedule, currently on a road trip in Montana, where he joins me on the line. Welcome to the TriDoc podcast, Stephen.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Looking at your very impressive Palmares, uh, I find myself um, somewhat envious. Uh, Here I am, a physician, sort of later in my career, trying very hard to be an athlete. And there you are, uh, early in your career as a a very accomplished athlete, now trying to be a physician. So our uh, career arcs are somewhat intersected, although (laughs) uh, I don't know if it's really the way (laughs) I I would love it. But... um, how is it coming off of you know being a, a world traveling professional athlete to now have to, you know, go back to school and really like be hard on the books and and give up that that lifestyle of fitness and really like you know athletic accomplishment?
1: Um it's uh evolving. Uh um my kind of mentality around it uh is I struggled with it at first, uh, I'll be honest, but, um, I'm finding a lot of, uh, reward in the process of medical school, much like I did, uh, training. Um, frankly, one of the things that I was most burnt out on after racing for so long was all the travel. So now I don't get to travel as much and, uh, that reduces the amount of time I spend in airports, which, um, at least for now, I'm still doing okay with, um, but uh it's it's kind of just been one big challenge to the next you know and um apparently i like taking those kinds of things on so so far it's been it's been a really really rewarding transition actually
0: now you hear a lot about athletes in other sports where you know obviously getting the kind of press and adulation that i think cycling sports doesn't necessarily get where it's hard to transition to just be you know uh A regular person. Um, for you, it's, it's, it's really different because now you're, you're not just like retiring and just easing into a life. You're, you're retiring and going like full on into medical school. Um, where are the parallels for you in terms of, you know, the kinds of dedication and the kinds of work ethic that you had as a mountain biker to now, uh, being in medical school?
1: Um, I think that the, the work ethic and the drive, um, that I, that either allowed me to be a great mountain biker or that I developed while I was mountain biking, um, that hasn't changed. And, and so, you know, every day I kind of wake up and I have a little bit of a myopic focus, um, regardless of whether I was mountain biking or whether I'm in medical school. Um, And so that has, that has kind of remained unchanged. Um, I think that in medical school, it's actually been a little bit easier to kind of turn things off though. Um, whereas when I was racing professionally every day, every hour is, uh, you're always thinking about like, how is this, what I'm doing right now going to affect training tomorrow, racing next week, so on and so on. And, um, now that I'm in medical school, I'm, I'm actually finding more opportunities to just kind of shut it down and, and not be, uh, 100% focused on what's going on around me and, and how that's going to affect lecture next week, you know, right. or, um, how that's going to affect my ability to see patients, uh, on Tuesday, you know? And, and so, um, and that way I think that I've, I've, found
0: some better balance than I had when I was racing. Are there elements of the sporting life that you miss? Yeah, I miss the people a lot. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. Um,
1: you travel the world, you suffer, you, uh, have these incredible experiences with this group of people that you kind of spend a lot of time with. And, um, while in medical school you also have that with your classmates i think that um i think there's something maybe it's kind of like a sick masochistic side of uh ourselves that you know love being elite athletes that uh we kind of like form bonds around um but you know my people my like community is certainly still um filled with those athletes and um I don't get as much of that in medicine right now. Um, and so I think that is what I miss the most is, is the community that I'm around and,
0: and a part of the, all the time. Right. What, you know, we I, I, I think about – cyclists uh, in all of the different aspects of cycling. And I think about what they what they must do when they finish their professional careers, which is a finite career. Um, it's not like there's a lot of money to be made. What do most professionals end up doing after their careers are done? Uh, some obviously go back to school. But uh, I'm curious, like, how most of them transition and what kind of careers they uh, move into afterwards. I
1: think that a lot of people kind of the, the classic um, pathway in my mind is like you retire, you start working with a bike company or a product company that you've been associated with for a long time uh, in development. And um, maybe you have a college degree, maybe you don't. Um, and you find yourself working in the bike industry, marketing or something along those lines. Um, that's certainly not the path that everybody takes. Um, but in my mind, that's kind of the classic transition that people have. And, and, um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for that path. I, I think that, um, you know, I have, I have friends who work in the bike industry after their careers and they have, um, you know, they, they do things that provide or, uh, kind of empower people to have a, a lot of joy and, and do things that they love outside. And, um, that, I just knew that working in the bike industry was never going to be something that, uh, was going to really work for me. It's not really how my mind works, how my brain works. And, uh, I think that I also needed some space away from it at the end of
0: my racing career. Right. So what does it take to be a high level mountain biker? Is it, because I, I'm, I am very much a like, tried a mountain bike without dying kind of person yeah, and yeah. uh you know i i love the climbing i mean I, i'll pedal my way up anything but uh, as soon as it comes to anything technical forget it and i'm just curious like to distinguish like a really really good mountain biker from you know the next mountain, really really good mountain biker is it how much of it is fitness how much of it is just the technical components how much of it is fearlessness where, where does it all break yeah. down <clears throat>
1: um i think it's I'm not sure what exactly differentiates, um, you know, somebody who's like a, a great mountain biker from somebody who's a great road racer. I think that you, you kind of see a lot of the crossover, you know, you watched, you watched the crossover happen this week in the tour de France, right? Edgin or, uh, Bernal was a mountain biker, uh, who I saw racing here in the U S prior to uh, his road racing career. So certainly some of it's the technical mountain biking ability that you have, but, um, you take a guy like Nino Schroeder and you put him on the road bike and like he is the only person that Chris Froome can't drop on a 15 kilometer climb in the Tour de Suisse. So the the fitness thing I think is kind of like across the board. It's, 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 you got to just have an incredible aerobic engine. Um, but I think that if you grow up riding the mountain bike and, um, and the road bike, like One of them just is more your passion, and that's kind of where I think people put their energy. Um, You know, Tyler Farah, former American champion road racer, raced for Garmin for a long time. We grew up in the same valley um, in central Washington, and uh, our dads were good friends. He grew up racing on the road in Seattle uh, more because that's what he wanted to do. And I raced more mountain bikes on the east side of the mountains. So, you know, either of us could have taken one path or the other, but, uh, I liked mountain biking more and he seemed to find his fit racing on the track and, and on the road bike.
0: Yeah. So no doubt the engine is huge and that's, that's yeah. like a big part of it, no matter which Uh, sport you take on. Uh, Definitely, for my mind, having dallied with mountain biking and road riding and triathlon, of course, and then some gravel riding, it just seems to me the technical aspects. And that's what seems to make the mountain bikers who transition to road racing, uh, like Sagan and some of the cyclocross guys, they're just such phenomenal descenders. They clearly have that technical part that they got from their mountain biking experience.
1: Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you spent more time riding on your mountain bike, you would develop those skills, right? Um, so it's, it's time and exposure to it. And the more you do it, uh, the more you develop those skills. And certainly at the elite level, people spend time really focusing on those technical skills, but for, you know, the average athlete or, or even the exceptional athlete, I think that, um, just time on the bike, time riding the mountain bike, develops those skills, and and that's where you see that crossover coming.
0: Yeah. So looking forward, do you see a way or a time that you anticipate leveraging your previous career with your current one? Is uh, is is there going to be an intersection between your mountain biking and your medical career? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I think there will be. Um, I don't know exactly what it looks like yet. Um, I think that, uh, I will probably try to, uh, work as like a team doc for, um, or at least volunteer, not, don't, not work full time, but volunteer with, uh, either the U S national team or, um, you know, a, a domestic road team or, um, Something like that where I could go on some cool trips um, and be there when somebody inevitably blows up and breaks their hand or something like that. Um, We always had these team docs go to, you know, Colombia or Brazil or uh, Australia with us. And they always just like got to hang out and go for bike rides and runs and eat really good food and, and hang out for, Uh, a week. And,
0: um, I think it'd be a fun way to kind of have that intersect at some point in time. Have you thought about a uh, specialty that you want to pursue?
1: Yeah, I I think I'm pretty sold on uh, emergency medicine at this point in time. Um, that's not just because we're talking, but, uh, I think that,
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're not going to get any negatives from me on that. So. <laughs> yeah. You
1: know, I, I got to see the lifestyle component of it that my dad had, um, when I was growing up, right. He always had, he, he, he was able to like kind of block shifts and then, and work for a week or two and then take off on a road trip and go to a mountain bike race with me, um, so there's a lot of flexibility in that. Um, certainly I'm sure it was harder for him when he was working consecutive nights than it was for me, but, um, there's a lifestyle component, but there's also the medicine component now that I'm being exposed to at UCSF. And, um, I think that I'm somebody who's widely interested in a lot of different things and, um, I'm not sure that I would make the best cardiologist. Uh, I don't quite have the, um, in ability to just like focus intensely on one specific topic like that. Um, and I really also kind of appreciate the social component of emergency medicine. Um, and having, uh, having kind of that interplay um, between working with kind of like indigent populations and then also having the opportunity to take the skill set and apply it to wilderness medicine or, you know, volunteering with the U.S. national team. Uh, I think it's a pretty broad, uh, there's so many doors that it opens up.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you've heard this from your dad. Uh, I would echo a lot of that. Uh, emergency medicine definitely opens up doors. Uh, I've had the great fortune of having a very interesting and diverse career. I worked uh, with the Canadian National Ski Team one year. Uh, I had one of those cool trips where I went to their uh, training camp and uh, got awesome. to do some skiing. Uh, yeah. But I've also I've also seen uh, a lot of other ways emergency medicine physicians are very desirable. So it's a, it's a good uh, solution. Select- Selection of career if that's the kind of thing you're thinking of and uh, certainly for somebody who's always got to be you know on their toes and you know anticipating what's coming next on the trail up ahead it's it's a similar kind of thing intellectually where you're always kind of on your toes and looking for the next fork and decision to be made and uh, things are always being thrown at you so yeah, Uh, thrown it both both literally and figuratively by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I have uh, I've seen both of those. <laughs> um so uh do you um ever get to uh take any of your classmates out and go riding or is that something they know uh, better than to accept?
1: Um there has been uh some interest in doing it. Um one of my classmates actually just got his first mountain bike, so we will We were planning on doing it this summer, but, uh, I ended up just mostly leaving town because the fog in San Francisco is pretty oppressive. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so we'll go out and ride some this fall. He, uh, he's new to it. Um, but for the most part, my classmates haven't been, uh, they're not mountain bikers for the most part. But um, we've we've done some rock climbing together and and some trail running together, um, so it's it's not that they that they aren't outside people, but uh, certainly going and riding in Marin County on loose gravel fire roads uh, isn't like most people's decision, like you know, plan A
0: right. for
1: Saturday morning.
0: Right. Now, once you hung up your bike shoes, uh, how much? of a role does mountain biking still play in your life? Is it something that you no longer enjoy because you just did it as like almost a job for so long, or is it something that you now appreciate in a different way?
1: Um, I still love mountain biking. It is still, um, you know, how I, uh, identify, let's put it, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm still a mountain biker. Um, I always will be, um, I'm a little bit more selective in, in where I ride and when I ride these days. Part of that's just like the amount of time that I have. Um, part of it was also living in, in Bellingham, uh, Washington, for a couple of years prior to moving to San Francisco, where the mountain biking literally out the back door is the best, arguably the best in the world. Um, and uh, gravel fire roads on Mount Tam are not quite as exciting as they used to be. Um, so I'm actually finding myself running a lot more right now, um, and back into skiing a lot more. And, and part of that's a, a time constraint thing that it's so much easier to just go for a 45 minute or hour long run uh, during the day when I'm on campus from 7:30 until nine 30. Um, and, uh, some of that's also just finding something new to learn how to do and push myself with.
0: Um, so, well, given that this is the Trydoc doc podcast, I would be remiss yeah. if I didn't encourage you to take up swimming because it sounds like you're two thirds of the way to an extera already.
1: Yeah. So I was wondering when this question was going to come up and, uh, or that, that, that was going to come up. And at this point I've had too many anterior dislocations of my shoulders to swim anymore. They're both just wrecked from mountain biking. And, uh, so I'm gonna going like. I'm going to have to to take a rain check on
0: that one. All right. Well, um if uh, anybody out there in California is looking for uh, a relay uh, person yeah, to, do the, to do the bike as part of their Xterra, look up Steven. He's uh, uh, enrolled at UCSF. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> Stephen uh grew up in eastern Washington. He was a longtime rider uh, for the BMC uh, mountain bike racing team. He also had a career that uh, included five national championships. He medaled at the Pan American Games, but now he is a medical student, as I said, at the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today, Stephen.
1: Yeah, Jeff. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
0: And now it's time for the Triathlete Routard, that segment of the show, and I'm joined by a guest to discuss a race on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendar that is a worthwhile spot to go visit to race. It's unfortunate that the attempts by the WTC to expand the sport into Asia has thus far not borne the kinds of fruit that was hoped for. Participation at races on that continent remain low, and for the most part, athletes tend to be coming from traditional triathlon crazy countries like New Zealand and Australia, rather than representing newcomers to the sport from within those countries where the races have been placed. Consequently, there's been a resurgence in new destination races in Europe, where there is still plenty of strong demand and where travel from the US and Canada is much more tenable. So for today's episode, I'm going to be discussing one of those new races, the inaugural Ironman Cork that took place in Ireland this past June. Joining me to discuss this race on the Emerald Isle is longtime friend of the podcast and my partner for the wintertime Reels for Wheels segment on this very show, Janetta Iwanaki. Like me, Janetta is an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, and she was there for the eventful undertaking that was Ironman Cork. She has dried off and thawed out and is here right now. Welcome, Janetta.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So I wanna talk a lot about this race that of course had uh, very extreme weather and uh, a lot of interesting conditions, but uh, first and foremost, did it sign up quickly? Is this something that people need to get on board fast or can they wait till the last minute?
2: So this year I would say it filled um, a couple months out, but didn't fill extremely early. Um, the, it'll be interesting to see how things play out for the coming year um, based on this first year's experience. I'm not sure we quite know yet.
0: Right, and uh, as is per usual, Iron Man has a five-year contract, and we'll decide after that if they're going to continue it, and I guess we'll see how things go based on participant numbers. Um, how was travel? how how did you get there and uh, how easy is it to find accommodations in Cork?
2: Yeah, so um, travel was actually uh, really pretty easy. So coming from Denver, um, I flew actually direct to London, um, to Heathrow, and then took a hop flight from there over to Dublin. Um, For me, that was great because I really wanted to be able to sleep on my flight and having that nice long leg makes it really easy to do that and then start to adjust over to that new uh, time zone. Especially if I'm traveling for a race, I think that's... for Me finding a way to adjust my time zones is half the battle. Um, And so I was really grateful that I got to get a good night's sleep doing that. Um, It was pretty cool, actually. It was my first time flying on a Dreamliner. Um, They spent a long time telling us on the flight about all the cool features that we would never notice on there. Um, I don't know if I can say it really made a difference, but it was a nice experience. And I uh, I really liked it. The windows are really cool. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And actually, I will say that I didn't wake up with like kind of a dry, scratchy throat like I often do on uh, transatlantic flights. So I wonder if the you know, cabin humidity had something to do with that. So that was pretty cool. Um, once I got in, I ended up crashing for a night in uh, Dublin. So actually, I have quite a bit of family who came with me for the race. Um, we have some extended family in Ireland, and so we turned it into a bit of a family reunion. And uh, so I stayed there just the first night in Dublin to get some good sleep, switch over my sleep schedule, and then pick up the family who was coming into the airport the next day to head down south. Um, the race uh, is actually in a tiny town called Y'all, which is not spelled how it sounds at all. Right,
0: Not y'all like the southerners. <laughs> exactly.
2: And actually, my favorite T-shirt I saw in town during Grace weekend was said, Y'all come back now, spelled like the y'all, town, right. y'all, which was beautiful. <laughs> um, accommodations in town there are uh, pretty limited just because it's such a tiny town. Um, but if you're willing to stay one or two towns over, it really opens up your possibilities quite a bit. Um I ended up staying at the host hotel um which is the Quality Inn in y'all and actually it was fantastic this even though it's a chain hotel uh, the owners of this uh, particular spot went all out to really accommodate people for the race in a way that I've never seen before. It's very much that Irish hospitality. Um, they took it as far as they possibly could. Ahead of the race, they like, reached out to people who were coming in for the race, asked them, like, what sort of things do you want for breakfast? What would you want with your dinner? Like, what kind of hours should we change our restaurant to be open to to be accommodating? Wow. Um, and they were just phenomenal. Um, they were the, maybe some of the best hosts I've ever had for a race. So That's great. That and- was really pleasant. So um, having a car
0: is integral then?
2: It's pretty hard not to. I think Ireland you know, does have a couple of train systems, um, but especially if you're you know, heading down to that area, it's such a small town and such a kind of remote spot that I think it's really hard to get to without a car. Um, driving from there from Dublin was pretty easy, though, um, mostly on the motorways, um, and especially as somebody driving on the wrong side of the road, it was actually pretty intuitive and simple, which was uh, a nice surprise.
0: Okay. And what about gear transport? Uh, Did you bring your bike with you or did you use a a bike transport company?
2: So actually I did neither of those things. I rented a bike for the race. Ah, Uh, So uh, France Bike Rentals um, works with Ironman Europe. Um, and they rent basically high end, uh, both tri bikes and road bikes for races on site. Um, the process was actually really easy. So, um, I sent them all of my fit measurements, um, and they had the bike set up for me when I got there already. Um, and I ended up riding a Pinarello, which was with disc brakes, which ended up being perfect, (laughs) which was really nice. Um, and, uh, they were super accommodating and, uh, really helpful. You know, they made sure I had everything I needed on my bike, including bike bottles and everything else, which was great. Um, So I just brought my pedals and my helmet. Um, I was traveling around for about a week after, and I didn't really want to haul my bike with me, and so it was a nice alternative. Um, I'd never done that for a race before and ended up... Uh, being pleasantly surprised by how easy it was. So
0: the company's name again is.
2: It's France Bike Rentals.
0: Okay. Um, and and what did they cost? I mean, not what you paid, but maybe just a generic sort of amount that it generally runs.
2: So I remember doing the math, and it was about. It was a little bit less to rent the bike than it would have been to bring my bike with me on the flight. So probably a couple hundred dollars in that okay.
0: range. That's pretty not bad. Uh, yeah, that's pretty great, and they. Had it for you when you arrived, and then at Correct. the end of the race, do you just sort of hand you it to them? hand it right back. Wow, nice. And it was super simple. Nice. Uh, okay, um, so you got there, you said, Wednesday?
2: Uh, yeah, so I flew in, let's see, I flew out Wednesday evening and arrived Thursday day For a Sunday race. For a Sunday
0: race. Okay, and did um, you find that was enough time with the jet lag? So, actually, that piece worked out pretty well
2: for me. Um, Drove down, you know, Friday during the day. Um, This race was a little bit different from races in North America where you have to check in on, you know, Friday for a Sunday race. They actually allowed check-in all the way up through Saturday. Okay. Um, So there was a little more time and a little more flexibility in the schedule. Um, And uh, for me, that was just about right. I think one more day would have been nice, but it was definitely feasible.
0: Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit about things to do in the area a little later because i know you stayed afterwards so we'll come back to that but let's get on to the course uh now the swim unfortunately didn't happen this year uh why don't you just touch on that for a second
2: so um i did a couple of swims in the bay there um on that uh two days and then the day before the race um actually the at that point the water was pretty nice. Um, it's definitely cold being in Ireland, but um, with a wetsuit and booties, it was pretty reasonable. Um,
0: Do you know what the temperature was?
2: So, gosh, I'm trying to remember now. I think it was 58. I want to say. Oh, so that's so chilly. Just cold. Okay. Yeah. 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 But. You know, neoprene cap, yeah. booties, and a, a full wetsuit was now. Okay. Now I should. I Not should as cold say. As I was going to say. <laughs> I
0: should say. Jeanette has done Alaska, man. So her her tolerance might be different than most people. But uh, yeah, fifty eight is chilly. Okay, so um, go ahead. I, now, now just to say, it, it's supposed to be a rolling start. Correct. And yes. it's two loops of uh, basically a 1.2. You have to come out of the water. Yeah, it's and, got the Australian uh, yeah, transition. Yeah, the Australian maybe. transition and go back in. Uh, do you know why it's called an Aussie uh, I, transition? You know,
2: I actually don't know. I assumed it's something they do in Australian Yeah, we'll, on, have, to ask, have, no we'll have to ask
0: ask friend of the podcast, Kelly yeah. Qua. She'll, she'll give us a, sure she maybe some answer. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's what it's supposed to be. But yeah. then go ahead and tell us about the water when you actually swam in it.
2: Yeah, so water was cold, um, a little bit cloudy, but pretty reasonable. Um, That area of the bay there is fairly shallow, um, which makes for mostly it's relatively flat, minor chop, but nothing too bad. Um, Lots of small jellyfish, uh, which is disconcerting, but if you're totally covered in your wetsuit, not all that painful. Um, But what happened was on that Saturday late afternoon into the evening, there was a big storm that was rolling in off the coast. Um, And the... CHOP started getting much higher, we started seeing big waves rolling in. Um, And so there was a decision made by the race team to um, readdress in the morning, the two big concerns they had were water conditions, and then actually temperature was going to be a potential issue. So the water temp obviously was on the cold side, plus there was uh, anticipated to be a very cold air temperature. And with those two things combined, they were concerned they might need to shorten the swim um, for safety reasons. So they'd let us know the day before that they would give us more information, um, probably on race morning. And uh, race morning, we hung out for quite some time without a lot of word and noticed there were no buoys out in the water um, for a while. And there were obviously large groups uh, from the lifeguard crew, um, as well as from the race discussing what to do. The decision they ended up making um, actually sort of was made for them um, for safety reasons. So there was a small craft warning because of the storm, so they couldn't launch boats Um, lifeguards couldn't get out. Um, and so for that reason, they made the decision that the swim just would not be safe, which I have zero doubt in my mind that that was the right choice. Right. Um, And
0: what time did they make that decision? So they
2: made the decision on the late side. So they knew that if, even if they did it, it would be a short swim. Um, so I believe the final decision was made at like, I want to say it was like seven 30 or something like that. So it was was late. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the decision was made to go to a time trial rolling start for the bike um, rather than anything, rather than doing, you know, a run bike run or anything else.
0: Okay. So let's turn our attention to the bike course. It's a two-loop course. Uh, if anybody has seen uh, some of the uh, video, you will be familiar with uh, at least one segment of the course, which has a um, what I would consider somewhat preposterous hill, especially given the conditions. But, That's um, a good description. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's two loops. It's got... Um, I mean, a very significant amount of elevation, six thousand feet of elevation for the the two uh, loops. And uh, most of that seems to come in one burst. I mean, there's some rollers, but it looks like, uh, most of that comes in two big hills that you have to tackle all at once. So why don't you tell us about the bike course?
2: Yeah. So, uh, it was really interesting going into the bike course. So there was a bit of a delay from when they made the decision to cancel the swim till when, um, my group actually got to go out on the bike because of the way they did the rolling start. Um, we had a couple hours of hanging around <laughs> in the, in the cold rain. Um, but I was very lucky to be racked next to, uh, Um, Some relatively local uh, triathletes from the west coast of Ireland, um, from uh, the Trolley Triathlon Club. And they were very familiar with the bike route and had given me some intel ahead of time, which was really nice. Um, And they had mentioned that uh, those two hills that you were just talking about on the course, and that one in particular was extremely steep um really brutal and had just been repaved and so was likely to be very slick in the rain um and the piece of advice they gave me was if you turn this like 90 degree corner and you see people walking on the hill just get off your bike Hmm. and i sort of chuckled because coming from colorado i'm like ah i know hills like i understand hills oh these these irish folks in their quote-unquote mountains um and uh, I definitely ate my words, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. So the bike course itself was actually really beautiful. Um, the weather was still uh, pretty intense. Um, so lots of rain, lots of wind, had some sleet and some hail out there as well. Um, but for the most part, the course was rolling hills on um, small country backroads, And the scenery was just spectacular. Um, wildflowers everywhere, lots of wildlife, just beautiful to look at. Um, and mostly seemed pretty feasible and manageable. Um, I got to the first of the two big hills and it was, you know, a bit of a push to get up, um, but not anything too terrible. Um, and I'd sort of, I actually in my head had thought that was the only big hill, uh, Mm -hmm. in that loop. Once again, a, uh, mistake that (laughs) Mm -hmm. I learned from, um, the one thing about the course that surprised me a bit was just how technical it was. So there were a lot of steep descents that went into sharp turns, yeah. um, which made it a bit difficult to keep up your speed, even on the rolling hills, and um, made it a bit more challenging than I might've anticipated. Um, once you got back into town, then you hit the really large hill, which is a uh, windmill hill. And it had been described as something sort of out of uh, Tour de France. Um, In particular, all of the crowd came out to cheer on that hill. And so it was just packed with people, just wide enough for maybe two bikes to get across um, because of how many people were out there cheering, which was fantastic. Um, But sure enough, I came around this sharp corner up into the hill, and I saw... Probably eight out of 10 people walking their bikes up the hill, which blew my mind. So I stood up on my pedals, leaned into the hill, and then got off my bike. <laughs> <laughs> Just came to a
0: stop. Right? Just and came
2: it- to a stop. I gave it a good attempt, but there was so much water pouring down that hill. It was so slick that without good momentum heading up it, it was really tough to get any forward progress. Um, as it, I was. It, it's
0: 21%. 21%, isn't it? yeah.
2: And how uh, long is it? You know, it's not all that long. It's probably maybe like half a mile on the steepest section mm-hmm. but uh it's an intense half mile
0: and and for anybody who's done things like um boulder peak uh which is famous for old stage road which has you know a section at 12 percent, which is for a quarter mile i mean 21 percent is absurd uh, and, and like for a triathlon is yeah. that's just uh, i'm i mean i I can't imagine people had gearing for that, so I can see yeah. why so many people... I mean, pros were walking. So.
2: Which yeah. still blows my mind. Yeah. Um, and I've never had to get off my bike and walk in in a race ever, and uh, it was it was a first-time experience for me. Yeah. But it was pretty funny, though, because I get off my bike, and, you know, of course, I'm still in my bike shoes and cleats, and uh, I start pushing my bike up the hill, and it's so wet and so slippery. It's like almost like uh, skate skiing up the hill trying to get momentum going right. upwards. So it took me... <laughs> A long time to get up that hill. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, but, if you're but going the crowd there,
2: was into it, and yeah. they were st- like, you know, even if like all of us who are walking our bikes, the crowd was still cheering their brains out for it, which was really cool to that's see. That's good.
0: So if you're going, you definitely want to have the right gearing to make an attempt. But man, yeah. that's uh, that's something else. And I, mean.
2: I would say, you know, it's, it, I think in dry conditions, um, that hill would probably have been bikeable with the right training. Right. Um, I think you know, training for those standing climbs, training on something really steep, you know, wherever you are, Um, even if it's just short hill repeat segments would probably make that feasible. But I think without really wet conditions, it was just tough.
0: Okay. Uh, Remainder of the bike course looks fairly straightforward. Um, The second loop on that hill must have just been horrible. Uh, And then on to the run course. The run course is four laps. Uh, Doesn't look to be... It's not a huge amount of elevation. Oh, and by the way, when I said... When I said 6,000 feet, yeah, it was 6,000 feet of elevation on the bike ride. It's 300 meters of elevation on the run, which is yeah. about 1,800. Uh, sorry, which is about 900 feet. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about the run course?
2: Yeah, so the run was um, interesting. It's a four-loop course. Um, and so it involves a, sort of out-and-back sections um, throughout the town um, and then up and over uh, this big hill past the lighthouse Um Out towards a turnaround point, out near the swim start, and then kind of back around. It was really spectator friendly, which um, I think is a really nice uh, feature. Um, And particularly, you know, I mentioned that this town is tiny, Um, not unlike the hotel I stayed at. This town completely embraced the race, and so all of the business owners were out there. Um, All of like the local school kids had made signs for the race that were like up at the elementary school that they ran past on the bike course or on the run course a few times, Um, and. the streets were just packed. And so I think having that uh, multi-loop run course going straight through town with a town that was completely embracing it was a really cool
0: experience. That's awesome. And
2: Mike Riley came out, which was really cool, too.
0: Oh, that is great. Yeah. Well, yeah, Irish uh, Irish guy himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and- Weather on the rest of your trip. It was was that race day pretty much the weather in Ireland? or Because, I mean, we think of Ireland and Britain, we think of rain and cold yeah. and damp. And I'm just curious if that's what they can expect every year or if this was an anomaly for your time there.
2: Yeah. So I was expecting the weather to be similar to that for the rest of my AA trip. Um, and in particular, when I was... Uh, You know, waiting for the race to start and standing with the Irish athletes, one of the big jokes was that they were waiting to see what the weather was going to do. And their response to that was, the weather hasn't changed in 200 years. Why would it change now? (laughs) Um, However, uh, weirdly enough, we actually got hit with a big heat wave in Ireland right after the race. So the weather was sunny and beautiful and like highs of 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit for the remainder of the trip, which was ridiculous. Wow. Uh, So it was gorgeous. Um, A lot of the, Locals were actually complaining about how it's far too hot outside.
0: Wow, we'd be having a very different conversation about the race had that been the right. day. Right, hmm. yeah. But I,
2: and I have to say, you know, the race itself was interesting partially because of, I think, some of the conditions. Um, the DNF race rate ended up being about uh, th- right around 33 35%. Um, which is relatively high. For oh, that's Iron
0: very Man. high. Yeah, it's very high.
2: Um, but I also think, too, that in some ways this race is going to be legendary because of the challenge, but I think also the people who are putting it on the, and the location are so cool that um, you know they, Iron Man went above and beyond to get people to come back for this race. Right. Um, they gave discounts for registration for next year. They gave free entries to additional races later this year in North America. Um, and I think you know if if my schedule would allow i would seriously consider going back
0: huh yeah well it sounds i mean and and i mean we could talk a little bit now just before we finish about what else you did while you were there sure. i mean you spent time afterwards traveling the country and it is a spectacular country one that i have <laughs> not been able to get to, but really would love to. So tell us just a little bit about what you did around the race.
2: Yeah, so I stayed uh, mostly in um, sort of southern and mostly southwest Ireland. Um, As I mentioned, I had some family there with me, and we have some extended family in that area. So that was really cool to uh, get a chance to experience that. Um, The two areas that we spent the most time in were the Barra Peninsula, which is the southernmost um, peninsula on the west coast, um, which is Absolutely gorgeous, you know, big rocky crags and mountains, um, going right into like a crystal clear bay, um, great hiking trails, great trail running, um, mostly small towns, um, and a lot of people who are doing through hiking. Um, so that was amazing. And then the, um, the sort of more northern of the peninsula is the Dingle Peninsula was the other place where we spent quite a bit of time um, which is really well known for um, both its scenery but also its local music scene so traditional Irish music um, particularly in Dingle Town which is the biggest town there um, is in like almost every single pub throughout the town every night and so you walk through the streets of the town and you just hear live music everywhere you go Mm. um, which is really really neat Um, the my favorite thing about the whole experience was really the scenery, but also the people. Um, some of the most friendly people who strike up a conversation about any topic, any place, anytime. Um, and so, going to a grocery store always took a little longer than you expected because your checkout time was like at least twenty minutes to talk to whoever was there. But uh, that sort of just openness and friendliness and hospitality was just really wonderful.
0: That's awesome. I, I'm I'm really happy we uh, got to talk about this race because I have to say when you know watching it as it was happening and tracking you and watching some of the video that was coming out of there made uh, a really negative impression but hearing your experience and uh, hearing the very um, you know real sort of positive vibes that you got from actually being there makes this race much more enticing so I'm really glad that we we get this first-person experience from a race rather than just uh, dealing with all of the negative stuff that came off the Internet.
2: And I'll be honest, I mean, this is never going to be a race where you're going to show up in PR and like, this is not going to be your fastest time ever. But I would say for the experience component of it, it was something that I really appreciated and would um, highly recommend if if somebody's looking for something beyond just a flat, fast course.
0: Yeah. And also, you know what, when you're doing a travel race, a destination race, it doesn't have to be an easy course. You know, sometimes the challenge makes the destination race that much more of a destination.
2: Exactly. And I may be a little biased. Again, I did do Alaska. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly i have an affinity for those kind of races but um yeah i think certainly as as long as you're looking at it as an experience rather than sort of just um, a result i think it's fantastic
0: awesome well janetta iwanaki is an emergency physician here in denver colorado she's a multiple ironman finisher and my partner for reels for wheels which will return in the fall once the uh, summer racing season is done and she joined me today to discuss ironman cork on the triathlete rutel thank you so much to for being here today janetta
2: thanks for having me
0: And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. As always, links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com and I hope that you'll consider leaving a rating and a review wherever you download the show. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with former professional triathlete Cameron Dye, and the triathlete Rutah will stay close to my home with a review of the ever-popular Boulder 70.3. Until then, train hard, train healthy.